All right, we are in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Philip Gully, name may or may not be familiar to you. He's a storyteller, writes with kind of simple Midwestern charm, published in a column in the Saturday Evening Post where he writes about things like growing old and comfortable chairs and trips to the grocery store. Occasionally he references God in these things. He also happens to be a, a pastoring a Quaker congregation in Indiana. In, in 2010, Gully wrote a book called If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. And in that book, he recounted what he described as his own odyssey out of what he describes as the rigid doctrines he was taught as a child about God and sin and Jesus. For instance, Gully explains that he believed the virgin birth as a child until he grew up and, quote, understood the irrationality of such a claim. And now Gully views the virgin birth as some man-made myth that's meant to diminish Mary's part in Jesus' birth and relegate women to inferior roles. Gully also became convinced that what he had been taught about God's anger and judging man's sin made God seem more like a, as he described it, thin-skinned, easily angered man rather than a God who would care about more important matters like war and famine and broken homes. Guys like Philip Gully talk a lot about things like love and mercy and grace, and they advocate for what they would describe as a more enlightened form of Christianity. Some put it under the label these days of progressive Christianity. At one such church that holds to these sorts of teachings this past summer, the pastor preached on Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Should be a familiar passage, being salt and light, our, our call to be salt and light. And he talked about how salt brings flavor and it preserves and it purifies and how light dispels darkness and fear and provides warmth. And he, he said all these things in, in rather generic terms, Let's be salt that makes life interesting and be life that brings warmth to people around us, all sort of nice, comfortable things. And then he said this about being salt and light. This isn't just about Christians. We need everybody and anybody, all hands on deck, bringing salt and light into the world, which means as a Christian, when I see a Muslim bringing salt and light into the world, I celebrate it. When I see a Buddhist bringing salt and light into the world, I celebrate it. When I see an agnostic or an atheist or a secular humanist bringing salt and light into the world, I celebrate it because we need more salt and light in the world. That should trigger something as you think about that passage and salt and light and what Jesus is speaking about. But the welcome on that church is a particular church where that pastor is. The website says we're an inclusive spiritual community seeking to live out a more just and generous Christianity. I, I, I don't take pleasure in, in playing sort of whack-a-mole on teaching like this kind of stuff and bringing it up in order to, to punch it down. But I say it because it's the passage we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 7 begins in verse 15 with these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. My hope is when you hear somebody discount the the virgin birth and say, well, then I grew up and realized that that was irrational or the idea of the atonement and Jesus Christ suffering on the cross and bleeding and dying seems sort of harsh and, and I don't believe in a God who would do that kind of stuff. My hope is that your immediate reaction is, uh, that's wrong. That's error. That's not sound doctrine. Uh, that's void of the gospel. But the fact is there are a lot of preachers like these guys, like Gully or Josh Scott, who, who claim this banner of Christianity over their teaching. 
They will say that they have a reverence for Jesus. They will use his words as they speak. They will pray. They will use the right cliches. Their churches will sing songs that sound sort of like worship songs. In fact, these guys have a a special appeal to the world because the world is hearing them say, Christianity as you know it is too rigid and it's full of hypocrites and it's all wrong and we're here to fix it. We're going to make it more loving and accommodating and generous. So Matthew 7, I want to read verses 15 to 20. I want us to think about this matter of false teaching this morning and, and, and tell you very honestly, it's, this is a sobering passage. This isn't one that, that, that there's much in here that we can um, be light about in any way because this is a serious warning from Jesus. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." As I've said to you before, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that as we read it through, you should be seeing is this is not just a a series of sort of little mini sermons, but this is all very much interconnected. There's a flow to to the way Matthew has laid out Jesus's sermons here and and put them into this this Sermon on the Mount, this particular teaching that we see is very orderly. And in fact, this passage that we're looking at this morning is a real important connection from the previous verses, verses 13 and 14, to the next warning that we'll look at next week that starts in verse 21. If you think about verses 13 and 14 that we saw last time, that's where Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. He says, essentially, there is a broad path that's popular, that that most people are on, uh, that is the path to destruction. It is the path away from discipleship to Jesus Christ, and it is a path that leads in a direction that is harm, that that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there is this narrow path that has boundaries that are prescribed by God's word. And so it seems sort of confining, and yet it is the place you want to be because it's the path of following Jesus Christ and being a disciple of his. And so he's he's made that clear sort of line in the sand between the world and the body of Christ, and he's commanded those who are listening to him, as we talked about last week, for a response. In light of all that I've been saying to you, I am calling to you to follow me to enter by the narrow gate and to become one of my disciples and walk that narrow path toward life. So we've got that. And then after the section I've just read, starting in verse 21, we come upon this perplexing group of people that we'll talk more about next week. This is a passage that you've probably, if you've, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, you've come across this one and found it troubling in some way. It's people who, if you ask them, would say, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, I I believe in Jesus and I do certain things, certain deeds, certain acts that seem to prove devotion. And yet Jesus makes this terrible statement, at least terrible as we understand it for the the, the sake of these people, that you are not one of mine. Depart from me. I never knew you. It's jarring. And and it sort of leaves us saying, how, how does this happen? How are these people who who seem to know about Jesus and who seem to say some of the right things about Jesus, how is it that they're not really his disciples? And so I would submit to you that a key part of the answer to that question is verses 15 to 20. That a big part of Jesus' explanation of how we get to these people who are deceived is what he's talking about in verses 15 to 20, that there are those who are teaching 
who have never really repented of their sin, who have never fully trusted in Jesus Christ, and who are holding out some sort of figment of of spiritual-sounding, maybe biblical vocabulary kind of things that really don't bring people to their need for Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's why this warning from Jesus is urgent. There really are deceptive, false teachers whose words bring about life and death in terms of what they are leading people toward, There are those who use this smattering of Bible vocabulary and who claim to offer love and hope who are not also offering truth. So this is serious. In verse 15, Jesus described false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. The wolf is the the natural predator to the sheep, and the sheep is defenseless against the wolf. There is nothing the sheep can do except rely on the protection of the shepherd to drive the wolf away, but the, the sheep is defenseless. And and these wolves are especially treacherous because somehow they manage to make their way into the sheepfold unaware. They they somehow disguise themselves to seem like they fit in with the rest of the sheep. And so there's something insidious about this. There are people, if you've been around local churches for any length of time, there are, are people from time to time who will show up in a local church who are simply difficult, um, sort of factious divisive people. It it sort of becomes clear. There's just sort of something when they come in the door that you sort of see a storm that's that's gathering around them as they they come in the door. And and, and their opposition to, to things that are true and their foolishness and all that seems to be very clearly on display. And it's sort of obvious. Titus 3, 10 and 11 talks of those who are warped and sinful and they stir up dissension and it's all very obvious. Jesus is not warning about them. Jesus is warning about something that's much more insidious of ones who seem to be even walking this narrow way with us, if only for a time. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy as Timothy's ministering in Ephesus. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Paul's warning Timothy and saying there are some who who will be within your community. They will have come and fellowshiped and participated in some way, and they will turn around and go away and demonstrate that they never really were true believers because they are being deceived by false teachers who in their insincerity are lying and leading this following away with things that are demonic in origin. And so he's warning. This this went on in, in as. Paul's writing to Timothy within the culture of the gathered church, but now it's, it's online, it's podcasts, it's, it's the wealth of input we get from those who, who claim to be preachers of the word. Commentator Robert Yarbrough says this, Timothy's task is difficult because opposition to Jesus' lordship and the gospel's redemptive truth can be suave and sophisticated, demonic in conception, and polished in presentation saying it's slick. It, it, it'll meet some of the right terms and it'll sound just right. And, and often it's about giving your, your very best gift now and, and how God wants to turn around and bless you back with a lot of stuff if you'll give to whatever that ministry is. But it's not just modern phenomena. From the Old Testament to today, God's people have constantly faced this threat of false teaching, those who claim to speak for God but are liars. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the prophet is quoting God here and warning of judgment on Jerusalem in part because it says, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst 
is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. Saying the very men that people are looking to to hear from God are lying to them. And they're in agreement on it, and they are destroying people in the process. And God is bringing judgment upon Jerusalem because of what they are doing. Paul to the elders in Acts 20, that we've read this before, Acts 20, 29, and 30, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That, that's... It's a startling warning. On the one hand, we can see that he's warning about the outside threat, some who will come in, false teachers who will follow once Paul leaves. So there's the threat from outsiders. But the real threat, he's saying, is I'm afraid that even amongst some of you, and he's talking to the elders from the church at Ephesus, I'm afraid that even some of you would get drawn away by jealousy or pride or arrogance or, or somehow thinking, wow, I could draw this crowd over to be my own little congregation, and, and, and I could do this or that, and I could appeal to them in some way. And he warns that, that this threat comes even from within. We know why this happens. Jesus tells us in John 8:44 that Satan is a liar. And he is the father of lies. His, his work traffics in deception. It, it, it focuses on leading people to a, a distorted view of the character of God, that either God is, is angry and wrathful and you don't want him, or God is all love and you don't have to worry about his wrath at all, or God is this, God is that, and it's not a biblical view or a correct view of Jesus and the gospel. And that's why verse 15 of, of Acts 7, the first word there is the verb, it's the command, it is Beware. We've talked about this word before, similar forms of it. The, the Greek word for beware was used in nautical terms to, to also describe the activity of keeping a ship on course and sailing in a certain direction. If you've ever navigated with a, a vessel of some kind on water, you know that the tides and the winds want to keep shifting you and moving you, and so you've got to be vigilant. You've got to stay on course to get to whatever that destination is. And that's the word Jesus is using here because that's the kind of attentiveness and awareness. And, and, and mind you, I, he's not saying this to, to church leaders to a select committee who are to be the, the discerning ones who are to tell everybody, he's saying this to the crowd listening to him, as you are going to follow me, you also need to be aware, you need to be attentive because there are false teachers and the consequences of their work is just disastrous. They are ravenous wolves who will destroy sheep. Sometimes they may simply confuse or distract people, but that is not Satan's goal. He much as, as Paul said in Acts, he does not want to spare the flock. He wants to destroy. So this is serious. But God has not left us to fend for ourselves. And I want to suggest to you two protections that God has designed for his people. They come in the form of resources and reality. And let me just key in on resources first. And I'm, I'm drawing this not strictly from the passage here in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Although I will say that I think what I'm saying is a fair application of his warning to beware and you and I should be asking the question of how? how. How am I to beware? And that's where I think God supplies resources that we see elsewhere in Scripture. We have God's Word. We have God's Spirit. And we have shepherds. The command to beware implies that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have a God-given capacity to beware, to be attentive, to be looking for these things. And I would submit to you that that starts with committing to the authority of the Word of God. 
starts with believing that this is where God has revealed himself. This revelation is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is everything we need for life and godliness. It is what God has supplied, and it is his truth. And so when a, when a teacher begins a message, I saw this one somewhere online as I was looking at stuff this week, with, with words to the effect of, I want to show you something that the Lord has been showing me and proceeded on this long message that had no basis in Scripture at all. Just something that the Lord's been showing me. And I want to, if, if they say, I want to show you something that the Lord's been showing me, then the next step should be to show you in the Word where the Lord has been showing them that, because that's where God has revealed himself to us, is in his truth. Same goes with the, the teachers with the fanciful interpretations of Scripture that, that, that seem sort of new and interesting, or those who, who take a Bible verse or part of a Bible verse and then launch into this long message that suddenly doesn't seem very biblical, but it had a Bible verse at the start that sort of got it started. And that Bible verse was way out of context. Mind you, the idea of preaching on one verse an extended period of time, the Puritans lived on that. So it, it, it can be done. Some of you said to me a couple weeks ago, you only had two verses and, and I wasn't quite sure what you were gonna do with two verses. I, I think you can preach on just one verse. But if you take that verse from Haggai, in the middle, and it's just a, a piece of verse, and you launch into the sermon that has no connection with the rest of Scripture, as one who's listening, you should pause at that point and say, wait a minute. How does this fit with, with what we see across the revelation of God? How does this fit with God's Word? God's Word is to ground us in His truth. God's Spirit wants to help us understand His truth. Jesus promised that in John 14, 26, that the Spirit would come to bring to mind the things that He taught, to help us to, to understand the things that He taught. 1 Corinthians 2, He elaborates, Paul elaborates on this, how God has given His Spirit so that we might understand the things that God has freely given. His Spirit comes to, to give us illumination, to give us understanding of the Scriptures as we read them and to point us back to God's sufficient Word. And then I mentioned the other resources. God has given the church elders, shepherds, teachers, to speak His truth, to preach and to teach. This, admittedly, is the weak link in the three. His Word... We rely on it. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is authoritative. His spirit can be relied on to be at work in us. The human conduit in all that is flawed. We are sinners. I am a sinner. We are susceptible to temptation. We are susceptible to, to wanting to please people. We are susceptible to, to sinful desires. And, and so that's why God's word is clear about the high standard of accountability that God has set for those who teach in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God is saying, I'm, I'm holding you accountable if you're going to proclaim my word that you better be faithful to it. But beware reminds us that if we will rely on his word and his spirit to help us, God's desire is to help us to grow. His spirit wants to teach us discernment. That's why Paul speaks about moving on from the milk of the word to the meat of the word so by it we might grow in our understanding of truth so that we mature and are more discerning so that when we hear something that sounds odd and doesn't seem compatible with, with the broad scope of Scripture, the storylines of Scripture, we pause and go, I'm not sure if that sounds right. I need to ask some questions here. Satan is filled with lies. 
does everything he can to lie. He lies about Christianity. He'll lie to people out in the world and say, Christianity is just, just another set of rules. It's all about do's and don'ts. You'll never be able to keep it anyway. And after all, here's the great line of all that Satan will tell to unbelievers is those Christians are just what? Hypocrites, right? You've heard that before. They're all just hypocrites. Well, of course, we, we understand the truth. We are sinners. We are fallen people. And we are dependent on God's grace and constantly going to him and confessing and, 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 and turning from our sin and embracing the ways of Jesus Christ. But, but the, the goal of Satan there is to just say everything about Christianity is it's, it's so judgmental. It's so harsh. And he wants to steer you far from it. Satan will lie about Christianity by saying it's primarily about making you prosperous and happy. So that, okay, I'll try it. And the moment things go wrong and I'm not happy and I'm not prosperous and I'm not making gains, then I start to question why I believe this thing that was supposed to get me there. Satan will tell you about the Bible, that it's filled with myths and fantasy. Exactly what I read to you earlier, the argument that the virgin birth is just unreasonable. The notion that, that you and I would, would be lifting our voices a few minutes ago and singing, you walk on the water and you speak to the sea, to the world sounds like sort of foolish. You really believe that stuff about Jesus walking on the water? Yes, because I, Scripture says it. And that's the account that's given, the eyewitness account of him walking on the water, speaking to the storm and calming it. And so I believe Jesus has power over these things and that he does these things. And the world will say that's unreasonable, the birth of Jesus, the miracles, the resurrection, the mighty works of, of, of God in creation, the flood, the exodus, all get dismissed because, hey, that, that's unreasonable. You, you, you got to at least be based in science on this kind of stuff, and that just couldn't have happened. And after all, the, the line that you'll so often hear that Satan wants to propagate is, it's, it's written by man, and they were fanatics, and they included myths. It's got all this other stuff in it, and you have to sort through that. Those who receive teaching, whether from the Sunday preacher, or from the Christian podcast, from the latest evangelical book, whatever you're taking in, you are, you are obligated to listen and to read with care. The word beware says you are to be attentive. You are to be thoughtful. You are to be comparing what's said here, what's said in that book or that podcast against Scripture, to seek to be discerning and to compare it against the true standard of God's Word. So there's these resources, but then the other thing he's also given us that he describes more here in this passage is reality. We know that Satan lies, and, and, and so he uses liars. And the ones who are the most effective tools often have a veneer of religiosity about them. They don't just come in and, and, and immediately sound like they are false and defying God, and, and they come in sounding sort of like they, they might fit. They say things about Jesus and love and mercy, and they put on a good show, but, but he warns here that, that crowds are manipulated by their lies. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Rhetorical, of course not. What, what he's saying to us here is, is by God's good design, over time, as you observe the life of one who is teaching, you begin to understand what that person actually believes and whether or not their conduct matches up with what they believe and what they say. And you will begin to see incongruity between the false teacher's speaking or his believing or his acting. You'll begin to see that this does not all line up in terms of Scripture. 
Jesus says there's no hiding the fruit from a person's life. The character and conduct of a teacher will be revealed because that is God's design. The creator has made it that way that we bear fruit. And, and, and if you have any questions about that, just, just think of your behavior when you are under pressure, when things have gone wrong. Isn't that the moment when, when the kids have pushed you for the 18th time in the day or the boss has been unkind and unfair to you and favoring somebody else again? Or, or you and your spouse are back in the same argument. Isn't it those moments when the pressure is on that now the fruit is revealed at that moment? We begin to see what the character and the conduct look like that flows from the heart. And, and, and that's what he's simply saying here, is you will see that over time in the teacher. You will see whether the response is patience or impatience, whether it's peace or chaos, whether it's kindness or bitterness whether it's gentleness or harshness that comes out, whether it's self-control or self-gratification. Matthew's gospel, quoting Jesus, often uses the, the idea of fruit, the fruit of repentance in Matthew 3, verse 8. If you say that you are repenting, then, then turn and, and, and show fruit. Show that you have acknowledged your sin and you are living differently. Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, the gospel scattered, and where it's on good soil it produces fruit that is born. There's, there's life that comes. The message is, is simple. A life that is marked by genuine trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ will bear good fruit. I'm not saying we'll be perfect or that we will always on every single occasion bear good fruit, but the pattern will be that of seeing Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the things that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. Because the fruit reveals the condition of the tree. And Jesus is saying the character of the diseased tree, the one who is a false preacher, whose roots are not in the gospel, will eventually yield itself in fruit that looks very unchristlike. In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah says his heart is broken by the behavior of those who call themselves prophets. And some of the things he writes in Jeremiah 23, their course, that being the walk of their life, their, their course is evil. They are ungodly. They have led God's people astray. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. Jeremiah is saying these, these are men who claim to be preaching, and, and as I'm looking at their lives, I'm seeing adultery and lies and evil. And in fact, he says, in their, in, in their lives and in their proclamation, that last line, they strengthen the hands of evildoers. The very preaching of those who are saying, this is what God says was causing evil people to feel at ease with God. Causing those who were being unjust and, and, and evil, causing them to feel like, oh, I'm okay, because I'm looking at this guy, and, and I see what he does, and he's, he's the preacher, and if he can do that, then I must be okay. And in fact, he even says things that make me feel like I can do what I want. When preaching that calls itself Christian gives comfort to the unbelieving world, something is very wrong. It should show them that there is a way to have hope and comfort and peace, but if it is giving them comfort in where they are, then that's not biblical preaching. When, when so-called Christian preaching encourages people to do whatever they feel is best, when it fails to urge them to turn from sin, when it says nothing about counting the cost of following Jesus, that is not consistent with the truth. And, and what God says here is he will show it to be false. 
He will show fruit that, that brings about the reality of this person's heart. Where the one who is trying to teach or lead God's people shows consistent patterns of jealousy or leaves strife and infighting in his wake. Everywhere this guy seems to go, if you look at the aftermath, there's people who are fighting with one another. There's more problems. Or he constantly seems bent on making sure everything's done his way. When, when, when his language sort of easily turns crass, or his desires seem self-indulgent or inappropriate, or his devotion to Jesus seems flashy in public, and yet it shows very little humble awe before the Savior or grief over sin, then all of those things should at least make us pause and go, I wonder here. I should maybe ask some questions. I should observe more carefully. Hebrews 13, 7 says, you should be able to watch the lives of those who teach you the word to see the outcome of their conduct and whether they have a faith that is imitatable. If you're watching me or Pastor Stewart or any of the elders here over the long haul and there's not anything there worth imitating, if the, if the conduct seems like it's just not consistent with the teaching, then something's wrong. Then that's, that's what scripture says. That's the warning you should see at that point. What, what we should be seeing is a consistent pattern of meekness, faithfulness, love, goodness, dedication to the gospel, because where those things are, that's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work, because those things don't just come naturally. That's, the, that's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit at work. The record will not be spotless. So if you're looking to, to find a moment of impatience, I can show you several from my life. If you're looking to find moments of harshness, let me, let me show you some. I, I, I can tell you, they're there. Unkindness, the record's not spotless, but the pattern should be consistent. And where there is that disobedience, it should be followed up with confession and repentance. The response to that sin should be different. Instead of trying to cover it up or ignore it or blame shift it, that should be the moment of saying, I've sinned and I'm, I'm asking your forgiveness. Contrast what preoccupies so much preaching that's out there. Does the preaching, does the podcast, does the book, does it urge you toward mourning for your sin? Does it teach you to be meek and merciful toward others? Does it plead with you to live out the righteousness of Christ in your life? Does it remind you to live in the good of the gospel every day and, and to remind yourself that God's grace is still sufficient even in today, even in the, the struggles that I'm experiencing in this moment? Or does it tell you as so much common sort of preaching out there does, dream big and pursue your dreams. Make, make your dreams the priority of your life. Um, you reach for your, your inner courage, your, your inner strength that you have. Demonstrate that. Does it downplay sin? Does it urge you to avoid making judgments about worldly things and just ignore that kind of stuff? If it does all of that, you should be concerned. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Listen, we're not omniscient. And so there are times that people come up to me and say, you said this during the sermon, and I have to clarify and say, ah, maybe I didn't say that as well as I could. There are times you're going to hear things, times you're going to see things, and I hope that's not the pattern, but I hope also that you'll ask those questions. But I also would argue with you that, that this takes time, but God has promised that the connection between a, a teacher's doctrine and teaching 
and belief and life will all bear out fruit. It will all ultimately show consistency. And if it's a bad tree that is not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the teaching, the belief, the conduct will all reflect that. And if it's a life that is rooted in the gospel, then the conduct and the belief and the preaching will all be recognizable as pointing back to the gospel. And this matters because wolves destroy sheep. And because of what we're going to read next week, and that, that is individuals who have right words and somewhat persuasive deeds and yet really do not belong to the body of Christ. And it is a dreadful warning that in part goes back to this passage and Jesus saying, there are those who have taught this stuff, who are leading people in this direction and you need to be where? Watch the lives and doctrine of those who teach you. Whether it's in men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, whatever aspect it is, youth ministry, you should always be able to go back and say, is that what scripture says? Is that what God's word teaches? Can I, will I rest my soul on this because this is the truth of God's word? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have read your warning to that crowd on that hillside. And it has been a, a chilling reminder of the fact that there are people who have trafficked in religion for the purposes only of personal gain, who have tried to use verses, things about you in ways that would distort the truth, but in ways that somehow people find appealing. Lord, we pray that you would Renew within each of us a, a vigilance, a commitment to truth, a desire to grow in discernment, to move from milk of the word to meat of the word, to, to think about matters like doctrine and truth and, and what your word says about who we are and who you are in the work of redemption. Pray that we would be compelled by this passage to want to dig more deeply, to grow in our discerning, that we would also be used by you to, to protect others and to warn others. Father, I pray for our church. I pray that you would guard Grace Bible Church, that, that our commitment would be to the sufficiency and authority of your word, that we would preach it, teach it, minister it, counsel it, disciple people with it clearly because we believe this is what changes lives. This is the truth that you use to transform lives. Father, guard us, guard me, guard our Sunday school teachers, our, our youth leaders, all, all who are involved in, in some way in teaching. Guard them from, from error. Guard them from um, saying things that are inconsistent with your word. Guard our lives that our conduct might reflect the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that anyone listening this morning here online, that, that they would be reminded that the hope in all of this is in Jesus Christ alone, that it is only in following after the Savior, his life, death, and resurrection, his death in our place for our sin, only by turning to him and following him and turning from our sin that there is hope and forgiveness and grace. Lord, may that 
message ring out in all that we do. May it be the storyline of ministry at this church. And Lord, may you, by your grace, grow your people to continue to love you and serve you and follow you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.